All right, good evening, everybody. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll finish up 16 also. It's pretty short. But uh, so much in this chapter, um, I want to get right to it, because Paul, all of a sudden, in the Corinthian church here, as he's finishing up with this fleshy church, they thought they were spiritual, but they walked in the flesh. He's trying to straighten them out. He gives them the basics again. This is what it looks like, and uh, here's why you're saved, and Here's some of the strange things that have come into your minds through who knows what kind of teachers. Um, some people are just good at that. They sow discord, and um, unfortunately. And if you don't have your helmet of salvation on, and you don't have the armor of God on, you can fall for that stuff. And they have. And uh, so he's straightening these things out. Um, you, you know, you've got to be prayed up. You've got to be walking in the Spirit, and you've got to know when something's of the flesh and when something's out of the flesh. And this is of the flesh. And, and what I love about this chapter, um, I say it a lot, you know, follow things to their logical conclusion. Don't just stop with the doctrine. What does that doctrine mean for everything else that has to do with Jesus Christ? How does it affect everything, you know? Um, and Paul does that in this chapter. He does a great example. If this is true, if you're saying, if, if what you say is true, then this is what that means. And it just blows up their Christian faith. Um, and we need to do that with every book that we read, with every strange, you know, new teaching that sounds good. So, oh, that made me feel so happy inside. Fine, I'm glad you feel happy, but was it an emotional happiness or was it a spiritual happiness? You know, was it something from God or was it something that, um, you know, you could put as a meme on Facebook kind of thing? You know, was it real or was it a temporary high? And, and Paul does that, and I like that. I like that. Verse 1, uh, moreover, brethren... So he's, here's more stuff for you. I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I'm about to tell you the gospel that you believed in. This is what I told you when I first came. Remember, he started this church. He's the spiritual father of this church, and they've moved away from him. They've had so many other teachers in by now. He's been gone for so long, it hasn't been that long, that they've forgotten that he was the one that God sent. He was the one that brought them to faith. And they believed on the words that he shared. And these other teachers have come in and said, yeah, well, he shared, but, and they've twisted it a little bit, and they've now glommed onto these new teachers. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you're throwing out what I've taught you, you're throwing out what you stand in. Because it's what you believed in, what I taught you, is why you're saved. You cannot change the foundation. The foundation is Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. You can't change that or it falls apart. And so he's going to explain that to them. The gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, it's everything he's trying to show them, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, it means you have to hold fast to that. And you know what? It takes a little bit of a grip sometimes. I'm not saying my salvation is completely dependent upon me holding on to God, but I do need to completely believe what God has told me. And I don't get to vary or slide away from those things. And he's telling him that. You've got to hold fast to the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Because if you let go of that, he's saying... It's all been a waste of time. So here's the gospel. For I delivered to you, first of all, 
that which I also received. Do those words sound familiar? That's what he says when he, when he taught them about communion. Okay? It's the same thing. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. In other words, I'm not telling you anything from my own heart. This is something I heard from Christ. I'm just the messenger. I'm relaying what he said, okay? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas or Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. By the scriptures, according to the scriptures. He's letting him know that this was all foretold by God. This is all supposed to happen. There were many that didn't believe that the Messiah was going to die. They couldn't understand Isaiah 53. They didn't grasp what that meant. If that's the Messiah, then how could he be king and ruler if he dies? It doesn't make any sense to us. That means his kingdom comes to an end. That means that there's a new ruler after him. They didn't understand. And so Paul's telling them, no, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. It was always a part of God's plan. That's Isaiah 53, 6. It's always been a part of the plan, and it's according to the Scriptures, not according to Paul, not according to anybody else. It's according to God's Word. And you have to do that. You have to take people, when you're ministering to them, to God's Word. They need to be anchored in that. You can tell them what God's Word says, but oftentimes they'll look at you and say, yeah, I've heard that stuff before, and that's your interpretation. Fine, let me take you right to the book. Here's what it says. You read it to me. I mean, you don't want to be that obvious. You don't want to be that blunt with them. But sometimes, I don't know, here, read that to me. If that's my interpretation, what is your interpretation of that Scripture then? If mine is wrong and you're rejecting it, what is your interpretation of that clear text right there? Well, I know. Well, that's what it says. Okay. So we've established it's not my interpretation. It's actually what it says in the text. That's why Paul does this. It's according to the Scriptures. If you don't want to believe that, you have to throw out the Scriptures, not just JD, not just you as you're ministering to them, because that's easy to do. People do that all the time. Well, ah, that crazy church over there, you know. Crazy enough to tell the truth. Crazy enough to believe God's word. You have to throw away the scriptures. And that's what Paul's saying. You can throw me away, he says, and they have. He's reestablishing himself there. But you have to throw away the scriptures too, because everything I told you is according to the scriptures. Okay. So, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. It was all part of the plan. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. It was all foretold. And then, to, in, in case you didn't believe he was really raised from the dead, which some people teach that, and this is what he's trying to address, they believed the lie that Christ didn't rise, that he was seen by Peter. Well, everybody loved Peter. And Peter's a bigwig, you know. Peter saw him alive, so you have to throw Peter out. Well, and maybe, you know what, some of them could. Yeah, Peter never really liked him. He's always loud. Fishermen, never liked fishermen anyway. Stink, they all smell. People do that. Then by the 12, the rest of them, they all saw him. That's a lot more people you've got to throw out if you don't want to believe this. And if that wasn't enough, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, and some of them are still, most of them are still alive today. And he says that because... Everything I'm telling you could be easily refuted. You can go find those witnesses and ask them the same questions that I'm 
you know, and ask them, did you really see Jesus rise from the dead? Absolutely. You know? So everything that is being written here in Corinthians could have been refuted at that day. Someone could have written a retort to this, a rebuttal. Yeah, he says 500. We couldn't find any of them. And 1 Corinthians, is that, that, that letter is an absolute lie. And Paul just did it to start a cult. But they couldn't because those 500, most of them were still alive. Some of them are dead. He admits it. But most of them are still alive. The witnesses are still hanging around. If you want to re-interview them, you may. But they saw Christ. The greater part remain present, but some have fallen asleep. Some have died. After that, he was seen by James. Yeah, we like James. Then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. And I'm sure that's how Paul felt all the time. I bet he just... You know he was, he was against the church. He was the one trying to arrest. He was the one trying to persecute. He got letters. He was so excited about putting everybody in prison and putting this cult out of its misery and everybody that ever believed in it. Kicking himself as he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who is the one who said, leave this man alone and leave these men alone. Oh, I wish I would have been a part of the twelve. Oh, I wish I'd been in number 13, you know? I was born out of due time. I, born again is what he means. I was born again out of due time. I, I wish I'd have been a part of that crowd sitting and talking with Jesus for three and a half years while he ministered, being there, filled with the Holy Spirit, raising people from the dead, healing people, being a part of all that, the five loaves and the two fish. Ooh, you know? That's how he felt about it. Born out of due time. But I saw him. When did he see him? On the road. Remember that? On the road to Damascus. When he was walking and the bright light came and he says, why are you persecuting me? It was Jesus. I don't know how long he saw him because he was blind after that, right? But he did see him. For I am the least of the apostles. Now, this is the first time he mentions this. Later on, he's going to be the least of the saints and finally he's going to be the chief of sinners. And, of course, we say this all the time, and if you haven't been here before or ever heard that, that's it's a very important understanding of your maturity in the faith. You start off with, well, I'm not as good as the rest of the apostles, but I'm in the mix, you know. I'm an apostle, which means Paul considered himself an apostle, and so should they. Later on, he says, I'm the least of the saints, so I'm a believer, but I'm, you know, I'm the least of the believers. He's going downward. And then finally, I'm the chief of sinners. If anybody shouldn't have been saved, Paul says, that'd be me. But I am. And that's important for someone who's been ministering for a long time because you hear that a lot. God couldn't possibly forgive me for my sins. He couldn't possibly... Now, you don't understand who you're talking to. I am, like, way worse than you. And I'm saved. So now what's your excuse is the idea. And so Paul's going to go all the way down there. But for now, he's the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that, but to kill and imprison people that believed on Jesus. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. I used God's grace more than anybody. You know, I applied it more to my life than anybody ever, ever needed to. Um, and I worked. 
I was so changed by God's grace that I was unstoppable and am unstoppable. Paul is that energizer bunny. I mean, this guy cannot be stopped for the gospel. Killed, stoned, brought outside the city, left for dead, gets up, raised up, we think, resurrected, and wants to go back in the town. This is a guy who understands why he's saved and how much he's saved. I think some of us get the idea, maybe we have days where we think we're just, you know, we're, we got saved a little. I mean, I'm a pretty good guy before Christ came and he brought me the rest of the way, you know. I don't have a true understanding. It's that holiness of God. It's getting into God's presence. It's reading his word. It's getting filled with his Holy Spirit. When you're filled with his Holy Spirit, when God fills you with himself, and that holiness comes into your heart and into your life, that's why you're flooded with tears. That's why you can't stop praising God. That's why it's an overwhelming experience because the vessel can't handle that kind of holiness. That's unbelievable. You truly see yourself compared to God when he even shows up in that tiny little filling of the Holy Spirit. And it breaks you, and it causes you to praise and thank God all the more for all the things he's done for you already, not for the things he hasn't answered yet, you know. My laundry list of prayers that I'm still waiting for God to, you know, his honey-do list that we give him sometimes, or I give him sometimes, I should say. I shouldn't put you in my camp. But I'm saved and going to heaven despite all odds, despite all reasonable, you know, uh, understanding of my condition. I'm still going to heaven. And so he says that. I used the grace more than anybody. I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. It was by God's grace that spurred me on. God, Paul wasn't doing any of this to get saved, to be saved. That's what his old life was. That's what he counted as refuse, working for salvation, working to be acceptable to God, all that. God's grace drove him to get up after being resurrected from being stoned to death and go back into the city and minister to the same people that hate him, that come against him, that gnash their teeth at him. It was because God loved him so much and forgave him so much. That's what motivated him. That's how ministries move forward. That's how ministries expand. More and more people grasp this concept right here. They understand this. I don't do this to be seen. I don't do this to be appreciated. I don't do this to be right or loved or for anything. I do this because of what Christ has done for me. I'm just moved. I've got to do this for him. Now, if Christ is preached, and here's his thought process, and he's saying, you know, follow it to its logical conclusion. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen, right? Because Christ can't. If there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead, which is what they're taught and believed. And that means Christ didn't rise, right? I mean, obviously, if the sky's not blue, it's not blue. I can't say it's blue for you, it's just not blue. It's got to be universal, it's got to be for everybody. There is no resurrection of the dead, so therefore Christ didn't rise. I don't even think about that. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Well, why is that? Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because. We have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. That means we're liars. If, in fact, the dead do not rise, we preached 
Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but we also preach that he rose from the dead. And you're going to throw out the raising of the dead. How do you not throw out that Christ died on the cross for your sins? It goes together. It's the same person saying it. How can you say that? How can you go through God's word and say this part's true, but this part isn't? How do you decide that? How does a person choose which scriptures are true and which scriptures aren't? Without getting into some serious trouble, you know? Doctrinally, boy, you get messed up. And that's what he's trying to point out. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Your sins haven't been forgiven if he didn't rise from the dead. This cool thing that you've picked up at church from this traveling preacher that taught you that there is no resurrection from the dead, you know that believing upon that means you're back in your sins again before Christ? Think about it. And Paul was a thinker. Then also, those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, they've perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ... We are of all men most pitiable. In other words, you just came to know Christ so that you can be his while you're alive, but when you're dead, you go back to where? To nothingness? What a waste of time. He's about going to say that too. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have died or fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But if each one in his own order, um, but each one in his own order, excuse me, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. That's before the great white throne judgment. Okay, understand that. I'm not talking about the rapture or anything. He's talking about after chapter 19 of Revelation, okay? Actually, actually about 21, or actually, yeah, 20, 21, right around there. That's all the way there. This is what he's talking about. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the God, the Father, and he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be de- destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are, in other words, the Father doesn't get put under him, the one who sent him. That's all he's saying there. Um, Anyway, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, he's still going to be subject to the Father. And that's the order of things. He's equal to the Father, but he's subject to the Father. And that can be the case. Um, And I think that's a good understanding there. Now, I mean, that's a lot. You've got to chew on that, maybe read that 1,200 times. Um, But Paul's trying to make something very clear. Your slight trajectory change in your doctrine affects things way downrange. Um, It makes a big difference how long your sight radius is on a gun. Um, If you're a hunter, you could have a short-barreled gun, a 16-inch barrel on your gun, and that's pretty good. That's about this far, and it it makes it pretty accurate. That's about your sight distance in there. But some guys like to use a longer gun, a 21 or even a a 24-inch, 
That brings your sight radius way out, far, far more accurate. The longer this is, is the idea. You want to have that um, perfect sight. And, and that's what he's trying to do there. It, 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 to stay on target, you've got to have that. You've got to have both lined up. If you try to move just a little bit in any direction, and although it's a quarter inch here, that's 12 inches downrange. It's the same thing with doctrine. We've got to stay lined up. We want to be filled with the Spirit. We want to love God's Word, but we need to stay lined up. The Holy Spirit stays lined up with God's Word. He doesn't vary, ever. So whenever you feel like the Spirit's moving you away from godly doctrine, it's not God. It's not the Holy Spirit leading you there. He's always lined up perfectly. And that slight off makes a huge mistake downrange. Huge, huge, huge. And so Paul's trying to line everybody up again. Let's get straightened out here, guys. If you think that, look how bad it is down here. Oh, yeah, that really messes up our salvation. That's right, it does. Verse 29. Now he's talking about pagan cults. Otherwise, what will they do, not us, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts of Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I mean, if this is true, then we only live 80 years, 75 years, 100 years, why not give yourself and indulge in every pleasure you possibly can because it doesn't make any difference when you die. This has always been my argument with Calvinism. It's always been my argument. What difference does it make whether we come to church or not? It doesn't. It doesn't change your outcome. It does not change whether you're going to heaven or not going to heaven. You have nothing to do with it. You've been pre-programmed. If you never darken the door of a church and you never heard the gospel, you're either going or you're not. Nothing you do matters. I'm in vain teaching God's word. Why learn it? Why don't we hit the bars? Or why don't we go do whatever the flesh tells us to do? Because we're going anyway. Or I'm not going anyway. I can't do anything about it. It makes no difference. Nothing changes. Ministry becomes futile. Any kind of helps, any kind of love, any kind of action, anything you do, all of it turns into a waste of time. It's the same thing. It's the same idea. This baptizing for the dead, some people get hung up on this. He's not saying we do that. He's saying they do that. You came out of that. You believed it before you came in. It's an understanding that there is life after death. Everybody does that. Even the pagans believe that. They're concerned about it because it's built into us to know that this life is not finite. It goes on either in hell or in heaven. Everybody knows that. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Why do we put our lives at risk if none of it matters? Do not be deceived, which means we can be. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You know, he's talking about there, right? He's talking about the teachers that they've allowed to come in. Did you, did you vet them? You know, sometimes I get that question. Hey, can we have this? Can we do this? I don't know. What do they believe? Oh, I don't know. They were at that church. That's not good enough for me. I'm glad they were at that church. Did that church vet them? 
Did they look into what they believe, what they teach? Well, I don't know if they did or not. We'll find out, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's not a, we don't want anybody here except me or, you know, whom I allow. You know? No, we want good, solid, Bible-believing people, you know, that are filled with the Holy Spirit and believe all of God's Word, not some of it. We're, we're not that hard up for teachers. It isn't that great. So it's a different vessel. Who cares? We want to know what is contained in the vessel. What do they have to offer? And if it's not this, who cares? Why do we want it? You know? And so Paul says, watch out for that. Evil company corrupts good habits. You've allowed these people to come in and they've messed things up. Awake. Why, you know, open your eyes. He's being pretty blunt here. To righteousness. Do not sin, and it is a sin to say Christ is not risen. It is a sin to say that you're not going to rise again. Jesus said so. Even, even David writes about it. I will not leave your soul in Sheol. What does that mean? That means he's someplace, and that means he's not going to stay there, and that God is going to bring him to where he needs to be. There's a, there's a resurrection. With these funny doctrines that we can fall into, we make God a liar. We don't mean to, but we make God a liar. We never say that out loud, but we do. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Just because they say they're Christian doesn't mean they have a knowledge of God. They may know of God, but they don't know Him. They don't have a relationship with Him. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? Explain it to us. We need to know this. And with what body do they come? Foolish one. That's his response to that question. Hmm. I thought we weren't supposed to call people fools. Remember where it says that? I'm supposed to call people fools. I don't think it means what we think it means. I do not think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another fish, and another of birds. Different kinds of things here, different kinds of flesh. There are also celestial bodies, heavenly ones and terrestrial bodies, earthly ones. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also, in other words, just like that, is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam being a life-giving spirit. Interesting. In the footnotes of my Bible, it states that every seven years, you've completely changed all of your cells. Every seven years. I don't know how old you are, but some of you have a lot more turnover than I have. Isn't that something to think about, though? I, I put a lot of stock in this. I really do. It has my attention most of the time, this body that I've been put in. But it's not me. That's not me. 
When you look in the mirror and you stare hard in the mirror, you may see your eyes, but you know that you're looking through something. It's like a lens. It's like a camera. It's like a machine almost that you're looking through, but it's not you. The real you is still there. The machine has changed over every seven years. Completely new. It's not the same machine you were born with. This stuff is all just how we interact with one another. This is our interface. This is how we shake hands. This is how I understand how you're feeling. I'm looking at Max's eyes right now, and he's really uncomfortable because we're men and we shouldn't stare at each other this long. You know, we look at each other, and, it's, and we're smiling. Some of you are smiling. Some of you are going, I don't understand what you're saying. And I can read that from your faces, you know. It's just a, it's just a machine that we're in. And Paul's trying to say that. This machine was designed for our souls, our spirits, to function in this environment. But this environment isn't going to be here forever. Eventually, we're going to be in heaven, and we're going to get new bodies that are appropriate for that environment. That's the celestial body. How cool is that going to be? Same DNA, just like the grain of seed that you just got done. Well, you're done with everything now. It's just sitting in there trying to waiting for prices to come up, probably. Drying or whatever you guys do with grain. But that grain has the same DNA as the stock did. It's identical. Completely different shape, though. Completely different purpose. Aren't you glad you're not storing stocks? I'm going to fold the leaves up and get them all straightened out. No, it's a lot more convenient to store a bazillion of these than it is the full. You get what I'm saying here? Paul's trying to make a point. We have this in everyday life. God has made his witness evident to all through his creation. We look around, and every year, we all drive down and say, look, the corn's growing, but that's not what it started as. It's changed. And every year we have this witness of what's going to happen to us. Every year. Next time you get behind one of these very inconsiderate farmers <laughs> with their big orange triangles, that's, take that as a sign from God for you that day. Either it's planting time. Think about your death. You're going to die one of these days. That's exciting. Or if it's a combine, you know what? I'm going to be harvested one of these days. You know, It's exciting to think about. God wants us to always be thinking about eternity, and so he puts it out there every single day. It's out there for us. In some, in some form, in some way, some shape, he's got it out there for us. And Paul's just trying to show them that you're going to get a new body, and it's going to be awesome. And so don't worry so much about this one. You know, I mean, you want it to be functioning and useful you want to take care of it, don't get me wrong. Be a good steward of this terrestrial body because this is the body you have for this environment and it doesn't excuse, you know, you don't get to treat it poorly. Maintain your machine. But keep in mind, you are going to trade up. You are getting a new one. Um, and that's exciting. And so Paul's trying to get them excited about this. Don't be so, you know, there's no joy in this doctrine that they believed in. There's no hope in this doctrine they believed in. It does squash. It kills. Some doctrines that we think are awesome and exciting, they absolutely kill our walk with the Lord. If you believe that there's no resurrection from the dead and that when you die you just turn into nothing and that's all there is to it, there's nothing left for it, how does that affect your day-to-day? Changes everything. Calvinism kills evangelism. Absolutely kills evangelism. They'll go out and they'll do it because that's what puppets do. We do it because that's what we're called to do. That's just part of the plan. It's part of the thing. But what we do makes no difference. Whether they accept Christ or not makes no difference at all. 
because they're either going or they're not going. It kills evangelism. And I've seen that on campus. It's absolutely killed evangelism on our campus. Nearly every single student-run ministry has fallen for it. And the navigators, they are flying. And they are at the top of their game. And they are packed. But they are very Calvinist. And the crew, 30, 15 or 30, when we first came here, there was 300. It's killed evangelism. Bible studies are flourishing. Evangelism is, it's horrible. Follow it to its logical conclusion. Follow it to its logical, just like he said here. Anyway, it's my thing. Um, it's God's thing. Um, so how is this going to happen? Well, here's how it happens, fool. That's what he says, not me. Uh, <laughs> you see it every single day. You're a planter, you're a harvester, right? So, however... The spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of the dust, Adam. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. So you were Adamites, but you've come to know Jesus. And now you're no longer like Adam, returning to the dust. You are like Christ, and you will go to heaven. See the beautiful transition, the beautiful picture here. So also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also bear the image of the heavenly man. Thank goodness. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Not everybody's going to die. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last, or at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Our new bodies don't ever die. They don't decay there's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. There's no more suffering. I don't know what this body looks like, but it, is, it doesn't get cut. It doesn't get burned. It doesn't get funny thing growing on it every now and then. It doesn't do that. It doesn't break, you know? I'm looking forward to that body, to where death can't touch it. The death, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, remember he always reminds us of that, remember you're beloved. You're not least. (laughs) That's how it feels. That's that's what that doctrine is. Well, God leased you for 80 years, and after that he's going to give up his lease. No, he bought you. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He understood that if you believe there's no resurrection, nobody's getting out of bed anymore for ministry. It's not in vain to get up and preach the gospel. It's not in vain to study God's word. It's not in vain to help your brother and sister in need. It's not in vain to be the hands and feet of Christ in this earth. It's not in vain. Steadfast, immovable. That's hard for people. I mean, you've really got to believe stuff to be 
steadfast and immovable. You want your doctrine, you want your belief in Christ to be immovable and steadfast. It doesn't matter what hammer comes against you, it's going to break, not you. And you'll be tested in it. Usually with a plastic hammer at first, just to see, you know. And you'll find out you might be a little squishy. And so you harden up a little bit. You get a little more steadfast. You find out what you believe a little more. That question kind of rocked your world when that person asked me that. Because I'd never thought about that before. I need to dig into that and read that a little more. People that come against your faith are actually kind of good for you and are sent by God to get you to stiffen up a little bit. You know, What happens when you die? I don't know. The Bible tells you so. Read it. But I don't know. I better find out. When my wife asked me a question, what does this mean? Well, what that means is uh, you need to study more is what that means. And I feel stupid because I don't know the answer because I haven't been studying God's Word. And I get strengthened, so I find out that answer. Now I know that answer, and I'm immovable in that area. But then something hits me from the other side. Hmm, I don't know that answer. Pretty soon you start gathering doctrine. You start putting things together. And this puzzle is no longer just a bunch of pieces on the table that you protect. All of a sudden this makes sense and not one piece can be moved or it's broken and it's not, it's not intact. It's a good thing. Paul wants them to be steadfast and immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, he finishes up. Now, concerning the collection... For the saints. Guys, come forward with the buckets at this time. Just kidding. As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. Must? He's so bold. On the first day of the week, let each of you, each one of you, lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there, that there be no collection when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is, a, if it is fitting that I go also, then uh, they will go with me. In other words, before I get there, I want you to start every Sunday, first day of the week when you meet. It's normal to worship on Sunday. Have the guys bring some money. Set it aside. How much ever you want to prosper. You like how he puts that? Not how much you can spare, it just depends on how much you want to prosper. Have them bring that amount. Well, I want to prosper. Then you better bring more. I just like the way he puts that. And then start setting it aside and get ready for me. And when I come, you pick a guy to bring it to Jerusalem. See how he's protecting himself? I'm not asking for me. I'm not going to take the money and walk away from this. I'm not saying, you know, your guy's going to take it to Jerusalem and bring it to them. I don't know why they did that. I, we really don't know why this is taking place, except that we believe that that's the poor church. They're the ones, remember when they started off, they sold all their possessions and they laid it, we were joking around about that, laid it at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one as they had need. Well, eventually Christ didn't come like they thought he was going to come the next week. And we kind of ran out of money, <laughs> you know? I, I, I think that's what happened here because nobody was going to work. They're all sitting around. They're having a great time and they're right. They're looking up, I think. God doesn't tell us. But it is interesting that Paul is collecting all this money from all these other churches saying, we've got to bring money to the Jerusalem church. They, like, they blew it all. I don't know. So that's what he's doing. But I want you to know, I'm not taking it from you. I'm not pocketing it. It's not going into my account. Your guy's going to deliver it. And if you want me to come, fine, but your guy's still coming with your money, whomever you choose. I like that. 
He's guarding himself. He's protecting himself so that nobody can say Paul does this for money. Paul's doing this to keep his ministry going or whatever. Verse 5. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. There always are. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as, as I also do. In other words, re- receive him like you'd receive me. Therefore, let no one despise him. Don't make him feel bad. And you know what? You've been in that, you ever been in that situation? I have. It's such an awkward thing when you come to a family event that you weren't necessarily invited to. Maybe you've never had that before. Oh, you're here. Yeah, was I not supposed to be here? Well, of course you are. Of course you are. And that's how it feels the whole time. Like, okay, we need to get out of here. This is not, I, we just, re, what was the thing that we just did? That just happened to us. I probably better not say. Anyway, we showed up and it's like, we weren't supposed to be here, were we? We just thought we were. Oh, I know what it was. Oh, I better not say. <laughs> it was a conference. It was a Calvary Chapel conference. And I just assumed we didn't get the invitation. And JC and I showed up at this conference. We're like, hey, guys. They were all just like, what did we do? You know, kind of thing. And then we ended up, JC led worship, and I got to teach, and it was awesome. I mean, they accepted us, but it was awkward when we first showed up. It's like, oh, you didn't invite us on purpose. (laughs) But everything was mended, and it was the Lord, and it all worked out great because now they love us. So it's awesome. All right. Better delete that, man. (laughs) That was awkward. Anyway, that's all Paul's saying. Hey, Timothy's coming. Don't make him feel stupid when he gets there. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now, concerning our brother Apollos. Remember Apollos. Apollos was a great preacher, and then he got filled with the Spirit, and then he was a better preacher, right? I strongly urged him to come to you, with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. I don't know if that's sarcastic or not. It doesn't sound like Paul's very happy with that. I told Paul, I strongly urged him to come, but he said he couldn't right now, so he's going to come when it's convenient. <laughs> I better not read into that. I don't know. Uh, but Paul doesn't, he's pretty bold. Watch, he says, verse 13. Stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. It's one of the first times we see that. Be brave. Let all that you do be done with love. Be brave. Don't be cowardice. That's, that's also mentioned in Revelation. Some of the people that don't make it into heaven are the cowards. He says cowardice. It's as bad as any other sin to be a coward for Christ. And I know you don't think about that very much because you think you're supposed to be a sheep and Sheep are just kind of dumb, and we kind of dope around. We follow our shepherd around, but he doesn't want us to be cowards. And he tells these folks to be brave, which means you need to be brave if you're going to be a Christian. Bold, brave, strong, full of faith. That means you fully trust God. Let all that you do be done with love. It needs to be done in love. So be brave in love. You know, Be strong in love. Be faithful, full of faith in love. I urge you, brethren... You know the household of Stephanus 
that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of, uh, of the saints, that you also submit to such, and to everyone who works and labors with us. Um, I want you to submit to these guys when they come. They're, they're, they're the, like the first fruits of the first people that got saved. They've got a house church there and everything. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus. Uh, I butchered that. For, Fortunate. Help. Anybody? Nobody. It was, you got it. Go. Fortunatus. Sounds good. Um, and uh, again? Fortunatus. No, the next one. Isn't that a, that's a tough one, isn't it? Okay. Achaicus. Sorry. You know, some of the Bibles have pronunciation keys right, built right in the Scriptures. I'm pretty sure I need to invest in one of those. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. Hmm. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. I don't know how to take that. I am glad about the coming of these three guys. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. Now, maybe he means this was an area that you were weak in and they were able to fill in those gaps, and that's a good thing. We want to be people that stand in the gap, right? Or was it something they should have been doing and they weren't, and these guys had to fill in for them? I don't know. Either way, I take it as a learning lesson for me. Um, You want to supply. There, There are different ministries in the church. Some people have different gifts, and they do these things. But Paul seemed to think that this is something that they should be able to do and I'm glad that they came because they supplied what you didn't. For they refreshed my spirit. Am I a refreshing person? Do people come away from a conversation with me refreshed? Now, if you need to be rebuked, it's kind of hard to come away refreshed. And that is part of the job of a pastor also is to rebuke. So you, sometimes you do the correcting, like Paul. I'm not sure that at the end of Corinthians, this letter, as they read it, I don't know if they felt refreshed. Maybe they did. Maybe it doesn't mean what we think it means, refreshed. But Paul needed to be refreshed. In other words, he's been battling all day long against real enemies of God, and sometimes he runs into Christians that decide to battle him also, as opposed to others that come along and do nothing but refresh him so that he can continue on with the battle. You think of Moses when he's holding up his hands, and he's got Aaron and her on the other side, holding up his arms. They were refreshing to him. It was a tiring day. It was difficult. Joshua had all the work. <laughs> I, you know, think about that. Poor Moses. I got to hold my arms up all day? Joshua's down there slicing and dicing and all that. But he got tired to the point where he had to put his hands down, and they started losing when he did that. And so these refreshing guys came along beside him and lifted up their hands. They didn't hang on his arms. They didn't pull him away from his responsibilities and, hey, deal with my problem. They understood that he was fighting and focused on a different task at the time, and they came alongside and lifted up his hands. That's who these guys are. I thank God for these three guys because they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. You know, those guys moved around a lot, and it didn't matter where that couple went. They always had a church in their house. I love it. I love it. Didn't matter where they went. They brought Christ and they opened their home and they were had the gift of hospitality. Talk about the the way Paul puts it. Priscilla and Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. He doesn't say that about anybody else. These were that couple, you know. 
They don't get mentioned a whole lot. Sometimes it's Priscilla and Aquila. The, the order changes up. They were both absolutely passionate about Jesus and about his people, and they loved him, and they loved Paul, and they took care of the people, and they took care of Paul, and you knew that. They heartily greet you in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. And so usually he would dictate the letter, and someone would write it so it was legible because his eyes were so bad. He was old, and he probably broke his arm 12,000 times, so it was hard to write. But when he wrote his last The last part, he did it. If anyone does not love the Lord, Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. And so maybe they were refreshed at that end. Everything I said might have been harsh. It may have challenged you on everything you've ever been taught since I left you. And there's a lot of corrections that need to be changed. But that last little bit in his own handwriting... Let everyone that doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. In other words, don't go their route. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's heart. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that you placed inside of Paul and gave him the inspiration to write these things. And we're so thankful for that. Um, We know that Peter said that all of Paul's writings are scripture. Just like Paul relied on the scriptures as he was teaching here, um, so uh, Peter said everything that Paul wrote is scripture also. So we can believe it as your word, um, as if it came right from you. And so we thank you for that, God. Um, Lord, thank you for getting us straightened out on a lot of different things tonight. Probably everybody got a little something different, but to not so worry so much about this terrestrial body. I mean, we want to take care of it and be good stewards of what you've given us, but we also want to keep in mind that there is a, there's a trade that's going to take place. There's going to be a transformation that takes place. And we will grow, and we will have a celestial body. Um, and we're excited for that time. And we believe you, and we trust you in that. We believe in the resurrection of the dead, God. We believe we have hope. Um, we trust in you. We know that Jesus rose from the dead, and if he did, then we will, because we are in him. And so we look forward to that, God. Help us to share this good news, because that is the good news of the gospel. I mean, the gospel is good news, but Lord, that is the, that's the best part. We know that you died on the cross for our sins, but we know that you also rose from the dead, which means um, that your, your sacrifice for us was accepted. That means that our sins are forgiven. That means that Christ did die, and not in vain. Um, but he rose from the dead, which means we will too. And we completely rest in that. So we're refreshed. We're refreshed from your word, God, from our loving Father, from Paul's loving heart, um, we're refreshed. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.